The Athletic. Hi there, this is The Athletic Football Podcast Weekend Preview. This is Adam Leventhal. And before we get rudely interrupted by international matches again, we're getting ready for Premier League Match Day 12. On this week's edition, let's introduce the cast. Alongside me, Tifo's John McKenzie. How are you? Good. I feel like I'm in a football commentary here. I feel like <laughs> Do I'm you? doing co-coms, yeah. What, was was I speaking too loud? No, no. I think you, you, you just had that, that football commentator intonation and I felt like I was, was getting, getting ready for the game. But. Well, it's great to have you on board, John. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, on the other side of the studio, we've got Jay Harris. Jay, how are you? You good? Um, yeah, I'm great. I'm pumped up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'll stop doing it now. And Omar Garrick from the news team is back once again. How are you, Omar? Very well. Um, excited to be back and yeah, looking forward to this. Tell me the truth. I'll ask you the question again. Manchester United supporting Omar Garrick. How are you doing? I'm putting on a facade here, but yeah, I'm great. Uh, but no. Yeah. yeah, it's great to have you all uh, once again. Let's run you through the fixture formation this weekend. 5-5 five, five, Saturday, Sunday setup. No FNF, no MNF. These are the fixtures. Uh, Saturday early kickoff. It's Wolves in 14th. They have the unenviable record of now being the only team to have lost to Sheffield United. They take on Spurs, who are second, and let's be brutally honest, they're crackers. Uh, <laughs> three o'clock on Saturday, you have uh, three games. Manchester United in eighth against Luton Town. They must be quaking in their boots. Uh, Luton down in 17th. Arsenal fourth against Burnley second bottom and Crystal Palace in 11th against Everton in 16th. Then the Saturday evening kickoff is Bournemouth. They're in the relegation zone in 18th against Newcastle, who are sixth. Then on Sunday, you have four 2pm games. Uh, Villa in fifth against Fulham in 15th. Brighton in seventh against Sheffield United, who are still bottom. Then Liverpool in third against uh, Brentford in ninth. West Ham in 12th against Forest in 13th. And then finally, the 4.30 game is that big one. Chelsea in 10th against Manchester City, who are top of the lot once again. And we will be starting at the bridge. So Chelsea beat the team who were top at the start of the last game week. That is Tottenham, of course. Can they do it again? They welcome the champions to Stamford Bridge. Before we get stuck into this, like literally... I just want one one word answers. Can they do it again? Can Chelsea beat Man City? Omar? Yes. 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 Jay? No. no. John? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, <laughs> no, maybe. That is fantastic. I ask because if you compared that to last weekend, no one was backing Chelsea to beat Tottenham and they went ahead I and did know, it. I don't know if that's true. Well, well maybe you, what, you and, and Paul Merson on Sky Sports, <laughs> basically. No, no, I remember... And this is not for me to wax lyrical about Brentford. But when Brentford beat Chelsea, I remember a lot of people talking about how Brentford were just set up in a way um, that just frustrated Chelsea. Like low block, um, Chelsea find it very difficult to get space in behind. Okay, there were a couple of times in the first half, Cole Palmer put some nice balls into the box. But what Chelsea really wanted to do was run into the space in behind, which Brentford didn't give them. Um, and everybody said, well, Tottenham with that high line are going to give them that space. Um, so while circumstances meant maybe they were quite fortunate to win, 
there was always going to be opportunities for them to create more chances in that game than against other teams. This is City though, John. And City have won six in a row against Chelsea and they've not conceded. Do you see this as, a, as, a, as another opportunity for, for Chelsea or do you just see it as, as no chance whatsoever? Because you did say maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting season because Chelsea's underlying numbers are pretty good. Um, and, and everyone's sort of been talking about that, saying, you know, at some point it's, it's all going to come good. They've got these finishing issues. Uh, they, they've been missing Christopher and Kunku. Um, Man City are always good. They're always at the top of the, the, the table. Um, but it does feel as though there's, there's maybe a few things going on here in, in terms of City have just lost John Stones, which we will go on to talk about in a minute. And, and Pep has said, you know, we could be in trouble here. They've not been their sparkling best so far this season as well. And so there's, there's still some unanswered questions a little bit about Manchester City. And Manchester City, I think in the last few seasons at least, have started out often quite slow. Pep brings, brings in new players, isn't necessarily entirely sure how to use those players. Then by the end of the season, they just do 14 games in a row where they just look unbeatable. Um, we're definitely in that first phase of the season, um, part of the Manchester City um, you know, season up and down. So yeah, there's, there's possibilities here that it could go either way. It doesn't surprise me that you mentioned John Stone so early because are you, I mean, how how much in, in love are you with, with John Stones? Do you have a, a, you have a poster man, on your ceiling of John Stones? No, just on the wall. On Just on the uh, wall. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, John, John Stones <laughs> has been fantastic for the last couple of seasons. I mean, for, for, for a long time now. But for me, John Stones' return from injury last season led to Manchester City winning the the, the treble and um, yeah I was disappointed that he didn't get his flowers and at least being nominated in the in the Ballon d'Or competition but there we are what happens with him not in the side who 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 fills in is it something that Rico Lewis can do a kanji can can do or are you just simply thinking right well that's going to be a downgrade whoever it is yeah Pep Guardiola mentioned uh, flexibility is that that's what they lose when they don't have John Stones in the team and he mentioned that everyone made a big thing about Rodri having that that three game suspension um, but he said the reason why we were bad in that period was as much because we were missing John Stones when we miss Stones and Rodri um, that you know there's a there's a lot less flexibility that's that's possible for us now Man City are a very flexible team we we know that they can change up their system in and out of possession uh, at, a, at a flick of a switch but I think what you get with someone like Stones and what you get with Rodri is the ability to to have these two players who can can basically interchange so you can start with Stones in the back line pushing forward into the into the midfield line and you can start with Rodri in the midfield line dropping into the back line and the ability to have that flexibility on you know, left left and right side just gives them a huge amount of flexibility both in build-up but also defensively as well. And I think what Manchester City are going to be lacking without Stones uh, is is the ability to for, for Pep to know we can push this player into the midfield and he will play at a level that is good enough for a centre-back to be playing as a central midfielder um, at the elite level. As soon as you change the things around, so against Young Boys, so Stones played the first half of that game and then they brought on Nathan Aki and he moved up into that space. We've seen Akanji play in that role as well. Rico Lewis, you mentioned as well, often inverting from fullback. Um, you, you lose something with, with them. You, you can still be flexible, but you're not flexible to the same sort of level of efficiency and effectiveness. So, um, yeah, I think that's what's going to be interesting in the next few games is to see um, 
where that flexibility is, but also how effective they can be at, at you know moving the players around and build up, uh, but also defending. Obviously missing John Stones, but they've got Jeremy Doku, who is... And it's interesting when you, you talk about Man City players coming in, needing a bit of time to uh, adapt. Often people's minds go to the you know, the Jack Grealish situation, other players in the, in the past as well. But he is slotted in and hit the ground running quite literally. He's, he's, a, he's a joy to watch, isn't he? Have you, have you seen a, a City player slot in so successfully before, Jay? I think what I find a little bit confusing about Doku is that to continue the Grealish comparison, felt like Grealish at Aston Villa, one of his trademarks was he would carry the ball from deep and just dribble past three or four players. And it felt like Guardiola very much tried to coach that out of him a little bit and to be more efficient in possession and keep the ball more. Whereas it feel like, feels like Pep's just said to Doku, just absolutely let rip, which I'm all in favour for. It's been brilliant to watch. But I just can't quite get my head around why maybe someone else knows why Doku's the one who's been been given all this freedom. But he's such an, uh, an electric talent, so good. And it just... The thing with um, Manchester City, as John alluded to, they've got those flexibility in terms of the build-up in defence and midfield. But they've also got so much flexibility in attack. They've obviously got Haaland, we know. But then when you've got Grealish, Foden, Doku, they all, and Alvarez, of course, can't forget him, they all present defences with different challenges to overcome. So when you can just throw these at opposition teams, it's a nightmare to try and counteract. Did, did um, Alvarez find his tooth? Do we know if he found his tooth? Because I, I remember seeing in the in the celebrations his, yeah. his tooth. Did he find it? Let's let's have a look. Um, whilst uh, Jay researches the thing <laughs> that I find the most interesting, they have got a tough run. So it will be interesting to see if it, if it tests them at all. Chelsea, obviously, then Liverpool, uh, Leipzig, Spurs, and then Aston Villa. I suppose we will see. We don't know the the graveness of the injury for for Stones. You know, other things might happen, but I suppose there's a, there's a chance that they might be tested. But it just seems as if they're getting into their stride, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I think so. And you know, the thing with with Pep Guardiola that I find so fascinating is that he is he's able to evolve um, just constantly. So at the end of last season, we were talking about that system where they they basically play a three box three shape with John Stones jumping up from centre back alongside Rodri. Um, and it worked, right? Like they, they looked unbeatable by the end of the season. They've come into this season, they've barely played that system at all. They've, they've changed things up. And it felt to most of us, I think, that there was still a lot of mileage in that, in that system. Um, why ever he's decided to, to change things up, I don't know. But uh, what, we, what we know is that he will find a solution somehow because that's what he does. He takes the players that are available to him and he, he puts them into the best positions on the, on, the, on the field to be able to get results. So, yeah. Even if maybe they have a bad run here, I think everyone knows that they will become inevitable at some point of the season. And uh, that's why Man City have been the team to beat for, you know, ever since Pep Guardiola has been in the Premier League. He will always find a solution. Did he find it, find his tooth? So actually it was just blood that was covering it. So he never actually lost it. Oh, I know. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's re- that's that's good to know. Um, Feel good story for us. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I completely agree with John that Man City have not totally found their, their top level yet. They still won nine of their 11 Premier League games yeah. and only lost two when, when Rodri was unavailable. But I mean, after Chelsea, they've got Liverpool, Tottenham and Aston Villa. So if they win all those games, then maybe they've, maybe they've finally clicked. But, if they, but also if they don't drop points in, in that spell of time, you may as well not write the league off already, but you know the direction it's heading. No one's really worried about City, are they? I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just not really fair. I don't think. <laughs> anyway, let's um, let's talk about Chelsea because life hasn't necessarily been fair on them uh, of late, and they're not 
they're not getting any credit whatsoever, uh, unless any of you in the in the studio is going to disagree with me. Any credit whatsoever for their win over Spurs? <laughs> do you do you think that that's 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 fair? I, I was just going to say I felt like one of the big differences between Chelsea and City, if we're looking at Sunday's game, is that City are a team that have been under Guardiola for six seven years and are very mature. And I think what you saw on Monday night with Chelsea against Spurs is just their immaturity because they just didn't really know how to just be quite methodical in the way they approached Spurs. Yes, that high line was ridiculous, but the second they actually started passing the ball and trying to find the spare man on the wing, that's when they actually had a better chance of breaking Tottenham down. Whereas those first you know, 10 minutes after a doggy got sent off were like ridiculous. It was like, let's just lump the ball long and get our quickest players to run after it. And that to me screams of a team who maybe are lacking a little bit in leadership and maturity that know how to take control of a game when it's ma massively swung in their favour. It was just a little bit like looking at a bunch of kids when you're playing Sunday League, oh, let's just kick it to the tallest and quickest player on the pitch and hope that they do something. Um, so that's why I think they've maybe not received that much credit from the game. We'll, we'll talk about Spurs' approach in a moment's time, but, but keeping the focus on, on Chelsea and Nicholas Jackson, he was getting panned as well, even though he scored a hat-trick. Do you think that this is, this is just the way that the world is at the moment, that people like to just pull people down because I felt you know it's like he would have he would have thought right yeah I've got my hat trick this is going to really be quite helpful for me did you find the treatment as particularly on on social media sort of just saying it's the worst hat trick they've ever seen <laughs> and he's you know hapless and all that sort of stuff is that is that fair yeah, a hat trick is a hat trick and you have to still score the goals I think maybe people reacted to the celebration that that was was being done again maybe that I found that funny perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was the icing on the cake. <laughs> it, I think, you know, you contextualise that hat-trick and you say, well, OK, you're the striker playing against a team who are down to nine men and uh, they're playing a high line. You know, you, you have to be in the right place at the right time. It's not the most difficult um, job for you, for you to have to do. But, yeah, I think people always gonna, are always going to diminish that. I think the, the, the big question, I suppose, going forwards is how representative is that of what, he's you know you've said a momentum shift for him and I think that's the, the problem is is it's such an outlier situation that okay it'll be good for him to feel more confident in front of goal but he's not going to be faced with those sorts of scenarios again for the rest of the season so I'm reminded of the Kai Havertz penalty where he, he scores a goal and everyone's like you know this could be a turning point yeah. but it's like you've scored a penalty but it doesn't tell you anything so that's sort of my position on it it's, it's kind of good for him hopefully he can he can use that as, as, a, as a way of being more efficient in front of goal but He's still got to get into the right positions and, and put those away in other games where the context is completely different. I've, I've read a piece by Oli Kay earlier this morning and it was talking about the kind of pressure on Jackson and Hoyland's yeah. shoulders. These very young, very unproven um, players who are basically being asked to carry the hopes of entire clubs on their shoulders and how, yeah, it's just not very fair at all. And what I didn't quite appreciate with Jackson is that he didn't perform that well in La Liga last season. He just suddenly explodes and scores 10 goals in the final 12 games or whatever. Whereas actually over the course of the season, he only scored 12 in 28, I think. So he just has this purple patch towards the end of the season, which maybe slightly skews people's expectations. But I think he's still only 22. 22, yeah. Um, and he's got so much room to develop. I'm, I've been pretty encouraged by some of the runs he's made and things like that. And of course, his decision-making will only get better. But this idea at 22 
obviously ignore Haaland, that you're going to be the, the, the finished product and a, and a completely polished centre forward is ridiculous. Obviously, Nunez has been at Liverpool for nearly 18 months now. He's a couple of years older um, and probably had a bit more experience in, than Haaland and Jackson. And people still don't really know what's going on with him at Liverpool. Is he a left winger? Is he a centre, centre forward? Uh, there's obviously that that clip where was it in the Carabao Cup where he takes a horrible first touch and then absolutely smacks it into the top corner. It's, it's so unpredictable and so erratic, and so you feel for Jackson a little bit because, as you said, he scored a hat trick. A hat trick's a hat trick. Fair play to him, but actually, the wider context is there's just way too much pressure on him to be the the silver bullet, if you like, for all of Chelsea's problems when they run so much deeper than that. He's also not been playing as a centre-forward for that long either, right? That He was yeah. converted from a, from a winger to a centre-forward, so he's playing a position that's unfamiliar. And you mentioned Hoyland. Both of them are brought in big money signings to play for cl- big clubs, both of whom are in terrible moments, right? Mm. It's not even, it's not, you're not even expecting them to be like, okay, this club is playing well, now you have to go and score goals. It's like your, your team has been playing badly for the last however long, and now you're expected to come in and turn it around as well. So it's even more pressure just ramped up. Yeah, and sorry to rub it in, but I mean, obviously, Hoyland <laughs> Ho- Ho- scored twice last night, and his team still didn't win. So it's a bit like, even, when they, uh, <laughs> even when they are doing well, you know, they're being let down. By no, but I think it's an important thing because obviously we talk about service as well, and I think with Chelsea, because they've made so many signs, there's a very similar problem at United as well. United don't really have the players to facilitate Hoyland's capabilities at the moment. So Hoyland's a player that likes movement inside that six-yard box. But then you've got Rashford and, you know, Anthony, for example, that like, you know, cutting inside and taking a shot on themselves. I think that problem is very similar at Chelsea where they've you know Todd Bowley has just spent all this money on so many different players and I still feel as if they're trying to gel together and they're focusing on themselves individually and that may be you know that will probably affect the service to Jackson which is probably another reason why he is you know not getting the service as much so yeah I think that plays an impact as well. Let's do our predictions um, not specifically on Nicholas Jackson as to whether he's going to get another hat trick we'll leave <laughs> that one aside but the prediction for the game result Omar I'm going to go 2-1 City. 2-1 City. I'm going Tight. to go 2-0 Man City. 2-0. Am I allowed to double up? Yeah. Yeah. 2-0. Um, 2-0 City. 2-0. I'm going to go with Jay rather than Omar. Okay. Um, we will deal with Saturday's early kickoff next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So let's deal with Wolves against Spurs, and we have sort of already touched upon it and how strange that game was exhilarating but strange uh, against Chelsea um a lot has been said is there anything that that you feel needs still to be said John on that game and and Spurs's approach in particular yeah we did a video on this topic for Tifo just talking about why you might play a high line and the pros and cons of a high line versus a lower block once you've gone down to 10 men and it's all to do with where you want the game to be con- contested really um most of the time, teams will sit deep because they recognise that, you know, the, with the players that they have, the best way of 
getting a result is sitting deep, absorbing pressure, and then being able to hit on the break. But for whatever reason, Ange Postacoglu decided that he wasn't going to be able to play that way. He had the players in his team to be able to play a high line um, and and be able to defend those moments with the, the the upside being that if you do win the ball back, you're winning it much closer to the opposition's goal. So you don't need to have these really long uh, attacking you know, counters. For whatever reason, it, it didn't work. But um, I, I'm always, with my tactics hat on, I'm always going to say tactical approaches are always about trade-offs. You're, you know, it's not just that, you know, you can say this is a terrible approach, but, you know, there's upside to it as well as downside in the same way that there's downside as well as upside for, for sitting deep. Fair enough to, to to Ange. He did say, you know, that, that that's the way that we're going to do things, mate. You know, that was that was basically that was basically it. I mean, I suppose the difference is when you're doing it with ten, yeah, okay, fair enough. When you're doing it with nine, it's a bit like, come on, you have to maybe, you know, it's it's laudable, but it's also turning the game into sort of a bit of a laughable they, uh, to, occasion. To be fair, you know, they were an Eric Dyer offside away from potentially stealing a point, and then obviously Son has that chance. As John was talking about the trade-off, they probably only get those chances because they were trying to win the ball higher up the pitch. So, I suppose what's what's more important now really is having to deal with those injuries that they now have and, and absentees with Romero, Doggy, uh, Madison, Van der Ven. Madison, we're not quite sure about the the uh, severity of the injury. Maybe fifty-fifty for for this weekend. How they deal with those absentees is going to be quite something is it this is going to really test the the depth isn't it yeah i think madison's a big one uh, obviously it's not really been confirmed yet how long he could be out for but spurs don't really have that sort of madison profile yeah. for a like for like replacement i think they've got rodrigo bentancur um and pierre Hoiberg, who are more you know box to box sort of defensive um so it's going to be difficult to see where the creativity comes from do they put brennan johnson in the more centralized role that could be an option and then maybe put brian hill on the on, on the wings as well. That that's. I think it's just going to be interesting. Uh, the defence as well. Mickey Van der Ven has obviously just been had such a great season, hasn't he? And it was a shame to see him, you know, pick up that hamstring injury. But I, th- I didn't think Dyer played too badly against Chelsea either. But it's going to be interesting to see how Postecoglou sort of lines up because you know Spurs have been playing on the front foot, playing on you know very fast paced football as well this season. And for what I've seen of Dyer in recent years, he tends to be quite slow as a centralised defender in terms of, you know, his passes and stuff. So, yeah, um, difficulties for Potter Cogley. But I think Madison's the big one um, because I don't think they have a like or like replacement for him. For people that haven't been watching a lot of Spurs, why are Spurs fans and maybe the the wider footballing public and, and tactical people like you who have tactical hats that they actually, <laughs> put, on, that, that actually put on? Uh, it's not a figure of speech. Why are they so worried about missing Mickey van der Ven? Yeah, because as we've said, they, they like to play with a high line. Um, the reason they play with a high line is because they want to compress the space further up the field so that they can win the ball back if they turn it over because they're quite an aggressive uh, attacking side. But you can only do that if you are if you have the defenders who are going to be able to, again, it's about trade-offs to mitigate being able to compact that space by, by running back. And um, yeah, van der Ven, probably one of the best backwards defenders, as I like to call them in the, in the, in the Premier League. I think William Saliba's up there as well. Is that um, the best description? Backwards defenders? <laughs> Probably there's probably a nicer way of putting it, yeah. I suppose. But <laughs> what I mean by that is defenders who, you know, defending one they're facing their own goal, yeah. um, often at speed and I think, you know, it's a real skill if you can if you can do that um well, it, it affords your your team a lot. Uh there was a poll on Spotify uh for the Athletic Football Podcast listeners this week asking if Spurs 
can still challenge for the title. Obviously, it's not just based on this this one result, but maybe the feels that they get from that um, and the injury problems that we've talked about, suspensions as well. 55% said no. Do you agree? Do you think that this might now lead to a little bit of a of a slip? I don't think it's slip necessarily. I think that, that Spurs were running a little bit hot anyway. Yeah. So they were always going to regress a little bit, I think. And they were sort of in the perfect scenario, right? They've, they've lost their first game of the season after everyone's been getting hyped. They've managed to do it in a way where... You know, people are forgiving of them because they've, you know, they've they've come out and they played aggressive football, and they're like, "Well, you lost, but you're down to nine men. So, what do you expect? You're going to lose anyway." And um, they've also, I think, they're also going to come a- a- across the issue that was always going to hit them at some point, which is they've got a very thin squad depth, um, and so this is going to get people thinking about that and saying, "Well, you know, they lose they lose four key players." And, you know, they don't have the backup to be able to compete at the same level once they've got those four players out. So a very thin squad. And and so in, in many respects, it's, it's not the perfect scenario for Spurs. But like if something is going to go wrong, I think this is the best way for it to happen. Because I don't think people are expecting them now to just completely crash and burn. But I think they'll they'll people will be a little bit more, I think, measured on it and say, well, you know, they're missing these players. And um, I think... Top four is probably what they they should be aiming at this season, and and this will just sort of reacclimatize everyone a little bit. Brief word about Wolves, um, because they were on a good run up until the point that they lost against Sheffield United, and that was that was pretty controversial as way as well the the way that they conceded that penalty. Um, they're missing Pedro Neto now, which is a massive massive blow, isn't it? You almost felt like the the air just almost went out, went out of their season when you saw him lying on the, on the ground. You just thought, oh no, this is really significant. They obviously have dangerous players and, and great players to, to watch in, in Huang in particular, um, but that's a, a damaging blow for Wolves, isn't it? Yeah, any team outside the top half of the table generally to have difference makers is, is huge and and I think everyone would agree that Pedro Neto is the is the difference maker that Wolves have right now. And yeah, they have other players who will, you know, relatively are difference makers, but but no one's going to come close to Pedro Neto, and it can have a massive impact on your season. Prediction time, Omar. I'm going to go two one Spurs. I'm a two one man today. Okay, Jay. I'm going to go two. Oh. Curveball. Okay. I'm going to go 2-0 Spurs. I think this will be more comfortable than people think. Lovely. Let's head to the South Coast. So 2pm on Sunday, it is Brighton hosting Sheffield United. And they're going to be hoping, Brighton, to get their first win in the Premier League since the 24th of September. That was a 3-1 win against Bournemouth. Everyone beats Bournemouth anyway. Um, (laughs) Having gone winless in five, they've only won one in eight. And John, really timely this week uh, on TIFO alongside Liam Tharm, you asked the question, have Brighton been found out? Have they been found out? Well, I think it's inevitable in the Premier League that you, you sort of get a season's grace if you're a good team uh, before before opposition start coming up with good mm. solutions to some of the problems that you're posing. So in the video, Liam and I looked at um, what Brighton are doing in build-up and how that's changed in the in the course of uh, the last season. Um, and I think 
no one really doubts that that Roberto De Zerbi is one of the best, um, you know, build-up progressive managers in the in the league, and yeah, Brighton have found new ways of, of doing things, which has meant that they've kept their attacking numbers pretty high. They've dropped off a little bit. I think that in part is to do with the fact that when you are a very good team, teams start opponents start dropping against you and, and playing low blocks, and it's it's hard to to break down low blocks. There's no there's no team that's really good at playing low blocks, even Man City when they lose often those games are when they're playing against low blocks so a, a, a bit of a combination of like uh, opponents being willing to sit deep and say you're so good at, at progressing the ball if we try and press you high you're going to play it through us um, also they they've they've changed their build-up patterns a little bit so they they're much more likely to progress the ball in wide areas than they were last season they were really good at building up through the middle and it's much more dangerous if you can do that and uh, they're now building up a little bit more in wider areas and I think that's maybe had a knock-on effect with their uh, their attacking numbers, but I think the big question is is the the out of possession approach because, um, like I say, I think my rule of thumb is you get a season of grace and then you know over the summer uh, opponent analysts spend the whole time looking at various teams and thinking how do you how do you cause these teams problems uh, and Brighton I think have they are so ag- aggressive they're so high possession that you're always going to be vulnerable to to counter attacks same as man city right and pep guardiola and coaches like him spend all their time worrying about how do we stop teams from from winning the ball back when we're really aggressively pressing high up the pitch well, pushing high up the pitch with possession lose the ball and then and then the space in behind for them to to attack and the difference between man city and brighton is that man city have rodri sitting as a defensive midfielder and brighton have Billy Gilmore um, and the, this is the big question that, that Liam and I argue about this all the time because I say the solution to the problems that Brighton have out of possession is just to buy better players bigger players look at that Man City defensive unit it's you know they have three centre-backs uh, and then two players who can play as centre-backs in front of them so you've got Rodri and John Stones and you've got you know anyone from Ake Akanji uh, Ruben Diaz Kyle Walker all of those players are very very good 1v1 uh, also very 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 physical players whereas if you look at some of the players that, that Brighton have uh, not so not so much so lots of interesting like questions I think that arise thinking about how his, his team play but the the big thing is going to be Deserby will move to a bigger to a bigger club people will say oh they're going to be defensive problems but he'll go to a club where they can afford you know the Rodries of this world to be able to mitigate those problems yeah he's dealing with a with a club that has a very distinct business model as well and he did sort of for the first time he he used it as a bit of an excuse after their last game and said that you know we're dealing with a lot of injuries and we're dealing with transitioning to a new team having lost senior players like McAllister like Caicedo as well and also they're having to deal with a fixture schedule which they weren't dealing with before which changes everything for them doesn't it yeah just on on what John said I think obviously teams have a much higher um, sample of what Roberto De Zerbi is going to do with Brighton. So naturally, teams are going to work out a way to combat that. I remember, um, you know, again, not to bring it back to Brentford, but there was a period this season where they started <laughs> you to... You say that so much uh, and then you do, uh, don't you? It's <laughs> just my way to, to sneakily do it. It is. But fine. I think teams have worked out what they do with Mbuma and Visser a lot more now. Because when they were doing it at the end of last season, Tony had started 99.9% of Brentford's games in the Premier League. So people didn't quite know what to do with Mbuma and Visser. Whereas now there's 15 or 20 examples of that. I think teams have worked out more. So you definitely see that with Brighton. Um, and at the end of the day, Brighton are still seventh in the table. It's still great fun to watch. I've got no doubt that they'll eventually start picking up the wins. I didn't realise they hadn't won in quite that long, but it'll only be a matter of time because they're also trying to bring in players like 
Ansu Fati, Jao Pedro still, you know, adjusting. Uh, same with Simon Adingra. We'll all work out eventually, I've got no doubt about it. I think the injuries as well is obviously a big thing that's, you know, contributed to not be, them not being able to play the way they perhaps played when they were getting those victories at the start of the mm. season. So obviously Estu Pinyan is such a key defender almost. I think he got loads of assists last season and, and um, I think they've been playing Pascal Gros as like a makeshift left back. Um, and then they've also lost Enciso up front, Danny Welbeck as well, Solly March. So, And these are sort of players that Deserbi used a lot in his starting eleven to kind of almost fixate that pattern of play that he likes with, you know, the high intensity and, um, and the passages of play. So, yeah, I think, I mean, loads of teams have had injuries this season and you've seen they've gone through a few blips I mean I'm going to single out United here because <laughs> we've had loads of injuries See, look, I'm not the only <laughs> one that happens, happens. See? It happens. Yeah. It uh, happens. to be honest I wouldn't want to be bringing up Man United <laughs> to be fair no. no but Chelsea have had it as well I mean you know there's been loads of teams that have had injuries this season that has affected you know, the way they've played and I think you know Brighton are a key example of this and maybe this is why they haven't had you know the victories that they uh, got at the start of the season. Do we give Sheffield United a, a sniff in this one or do you think they're going to be outclassed? I think they're going to be outclassed, yeah. Okay, thanks. No, that's fine. I like that. Um, let's have our predictions for this one. Omar, you can kick off. I'm going to go 3-0 Brighton. I was going to say 3-0 as well. I'll say 3-1 because I think Brighton have had more 3-1s oh, yeah, than 1-0s under Roberto yeah. De Zerbi. So there you go. Nice. Okay, so we are backing Brighton to just get back on track. Okay, let's um, quickly get stuck into Manchester United. Omar's face drops as he uh, just contemplates <laughs> his team once again. They're taking on... Ooh, fear, fear. They're taking on the gargantuan giants that are Luton Town. It's obviously been another difficult week. Losing against Copenhagen, 2-0 up. Lost 4-3, uh, as Jay mentioned earlier on, Hoyland on target. You know, there's been so many um, difficult moments for Manchester United this season. But losing against Luton at home uh, at Old Trafford would be the worst? Would it be the Nadir? I think it would be up there, um, certainly because, you know, Luton are promoted side and a lot of people have tipped them to you know get relegated. Sorry, Luton fans. Um, but... <sighs> Yeah, it would be bad. I think, to, to be honest, going back to the Copenhagen game, that there was a period in the first half in, when we had 11 men on the pitch where I thought that was United's best 20 minutes of the season. I know Eric Ten Hag alluded to that as well. I, I do think United will win at the weekend, but I am concerned at the moment just because of the way results are. Um, I did think we were unlucky, but the, the way we're conceding goals at the moment, the way the midfield kind of disintegrates the moment we go down. I mean, you could say that for the whole team, really. Um, we just don't really seem to have that mental capacity at the, this season to kind of hold on to leads, which is which is concerning. I think a lot of United fans are feeling the same because just, you just don't know what's going to happen each week that comes by. So, yeah, um, not confident. It's, it's, it's funny that you go into a game like this and you go, well, you know, there's a team there that's got a clear identity. Manchester United against Luton, and we're talking about Luton Town. They know what they're doing. They, you know, like to play 3-5-2, get their fullbacks forward. Um, in terms of the, the game itself, when you look at Manchester United, the fact that they don't seem to f have a home for Varane or Mason Mount, I mean... It, 
are these players that become a lot better because they're out of the side or do you see them that they should be in that side it's it's one of those things where I look at you look at the team sheets and and the players who aren't making it onto the team and you sort of feel as though the the manager is is in self preservation mode a little bit um, it feels that way um, whether or not that's because you know he's wanting to not lose games rather than win games or at least thinking that's the way to approach these things I don't know and and, and this is speculative on my on my part but I think the problem is is when your team gets into that sort of cycle of of, of when you're like well, we've got to just try and turn things around one way or the other. You move away from what the model was at the beginning of the season, which is we bring in these players that we need to improve our system, and you switch to this approach, which is how do we simply get anything we can out of these results? And it, and it becomes a very it becomes a very difficult um, way of approaching um, winning football games. And uh, you know, Manchester Manchester United this season are are the second highest overperforming team according to the underlying numbers. Overperforming, right? So they're they're overperforming and they're in eighth place, <laughs> which is nuts, right? That that means that they should probably be in the bottom half of the table given their results, and it's dropped off very quickly, right? The decline has been vertiginous in many respects. And, and Man United went into the the end of this last season sort of very, pretty pretty buoyant, really. They'd lost the FA Cup final, but they won the Carabao Cup. They turned things around at the club. They brought in a bunch of players that the coach said that they wanted to get, and it's, it's gone completely wrong this season. So I find it very hard to analyse Man United from that point of view because it's hard to know like how ideal everything that is going on is because, like I say, it feels as though... He's just sort of treading water game to game. And even uh, even the weekend, like getting, you know, scabbing a result in injury time against Fulham. On the one hand, that's good. It's good to get those results. But for a team like Manchester United, you you shouldn't be in that in that sort of treading water phase. You should always be in that phase where you're like, how do we how do we get ourselves back up to the elite level that we want to be in? So it's very hard to sort of know where Man United are at, at the moment. Do you see Ten Hag being the the man for the longer term or do you see him just sort of treading water until we get this takeover situation or, or investment situation sorted with Jim Radcliffe and then maybe they can they can pin their colours to whatever mask they want? I'm a firm backer of Eric Ten Hag just because I think there are uh, there will be a certain element of the fan base that do want him to go because they just don't really see any patterns of play after 18 months and I do get that but I'm, from my point of view, I'm just sick of going through the cycle of rinse and repeat and going through continuous managers all the time. Because when are we going to get to the point when it's not actually the manager's fault? Because I, I completely get that he's the one that kind of coordinates things that go on in the training field and such. But there's just so many external factors that are contributing, in my opinion, to why United are playing the way they are. That The team at the moment is a causation of various managers that we've had in the past and it's almost a mix-up of those it's like putting them into a cocktail that doesn't really taste nice it's it's just not really working at the moment mm. I mean you've got you know Dallow he's come under a lot of scrutiny recently I know he's been playing out of position but he was at fault for the goal uh, against Copenhagen he just wasn't really tracking his marker he's caused a lot of controversy I personally don't think he's you know at the level that United need but he's just the prime example of that because he got given the four or five year contract in May um, but going back to Ten Hag I, I do think he is the right man going forward a lot of people would disagree with that but I just think there's been you know, there has been errors you know with the recruitment and you know giving him too much power on that front but that again that comes back to the ownership and the structure behind the football club so to say it's all Ten Hag's fault is nonsense and I think he's the quickest manager to get to 50 Premier League wins um, 
as a United manager. So, yeah, I, I firmly back him. I do think he's the right man. If they beat Luton. Yeah. If they beat Luton. <laughs> if, yeah, if. if. Big if. if. They, it's a massive if. Yeah, they are, that's interesting you mentioned about sort of a cocktail. Manchester United are the moody pint of the, of the <laughs> yeah. Premier League. <laughs> they are. Sort of yeah. like, dirty oh, pint. Yeah, dirty <laughs> pint. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going near like that. Like a John oh, Smith. No, <laughs> you'd, only have, you'd only have it if it was your stag do and you were made to uh, to do it. But you have a season ticket, Omar, so I you're do. sort of obliged to, to drink that pint. <laughs> drink that pint all the time, yeah. Right, uh, just a, uh, any other business at the end of uh, the show, um, an opportunity just to sort of get our teeth into some of the other games. And just quickly before we do, you've written about VAR this season. I just looked at, at Arsenal against Burnley on Saturday at three o'clock. Jay, you wrote about VAR and... and changes that should be made after Mikel Arteta got his knickers in a twist <laughs> look this was a, a little bit of fun but it was something we were discussing in the office um, but for me personally I think what frustrates me is that VAR looks at every decision that happens during a game everything that's slightly contentious and my argument was maybe we should only look at 50-50 decisions when managers challenge what's happened on the field and in the NFL, they do this by throwing a, a fancy red flag onto the pitch. And who doesn't want to see Pep Guardiola, you know, launching a red flag onto the pitch when, <laughs> when Doku's been fouled and he thinks there should be a penalty. But my point was, you know, take Monday night's game, for example. I think in the last two seasons of the Premier League, that was the game where the ball's been in play for the least amount of time. It was just constantly getting disrupted. The game's constantly getting paused. If you're only focusing on big moments that managers are challenging, I just like to think that when the decisions are being reviewed, there's just less pressure on the referees in the VAR because they're not doing 10 million things at once. They're just focusing on getting that key decision right in that moment. But that game was an, an exception rather than the rule, wasn't it? That was just you say that, all sorts going on yeah, in one it, moment. You say that, but obviously it happened with Arsenal and Newcastle with the triple VAR check. Um, you know, I had a couple of mates who were at the game on Monday um, in the Chelsea end and they were like, we didn't really celebrate half of our goals because, you know... Um, yeah. It was being flashed up with VAR every time. So it was a slightly, it wasn't tongue in cheek, but I tried to have a little bit of fun and, and it's not a perfect solution, I, I know it. But you're um, then going to add another person to coaching staff. I did say <laughs> and that. And going to basically say, just be a just VAR, help, then, VAR sort of but then, coach. But then I've just made more jobs for people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, Jay. And um, one other quick word on, uh, again, are you going to Anfield? I am, Yes. Liverpool against Brentford. It has the potential to be a really a really attractive game, doesn't it? I think so. Um, the last time these two teams played each other was actually, I think, Ivan Tony's last game, believe it or not, way back in May. The two games I've seen them go to Anfield, they've been very tight and they've not really created that much. So I'm going in with low expectations, but obviously I'm hoping to be pleasantly surprised. Omar, you'll be at Old Trafford? Yes, I will be. Um, hopefully for a win, but again, big if. Oh, you'll be, you'll, you'll be there for a win it just won't be Man United <laughs> <laughs> and John are you going to a game? I'm not I'm going to be donning my tactical hat and watching everything oh, fantastic yeah. do you have like a do you have like a tactical hub in, the, in the sort of the basement you, I'm imagining in the you, basement you know in uh, Batman the, uh, is it the Dark Knight <laughs> where they've got that uh, little thing where they're like plugged into every CCTV camera in the world that's what I'm imagining it's, it's just screens it's upon very screens. much not that it's, it's just me with a laptop Usually watching games back at double speed and going backwards and forwards just to get you know just to get that nuance. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> nail it, nail the nuance. Yeah, <laughs> lovely, excellent, John. Thanks very much for coming on. It was a pleasure. Jay, same to you. Thank you. And Omar, great to see you. Thank you.
Good luck this weekend. (laughs) 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 Try and enjoy it. Try and enjoy it. Um, That's all for this weekend preview. No weekend preview next week because... We are welcoming back international football, but also there's an exciting new series looking at crisis clubs. They are going to be doing five episodes on Manchester United. Uh, Only joking, Omar. (laughs) Don't worry. It's various different teams. That's going to be on this feed all next week. So keep your ears peeled for that if you can do that. Um, And I will be back in a fortnight's time. You can sign up to The Athletic for £199 or a month for an entire year at theathletic.com forward slash football pod if you want to join the athletic family thanks very much for listening have a great weekend we'll see you soon the athletic